All right, we'll get set up here. I was, uh, I was thinking as I was sitting out there, the, when, I finished, uh, when I finished schooling, um, I went to a Bible school. When I, went to, uh, when I finished, I went to Canada. Can I raise this? Let me see. Oh, there we go. Let me see. That's probably good. Uh, so I went to uh, Canada, and in Canada, I went to a school, and I studied culture and church planting and things like that, and uh, I was attending a, a little Baptist church there, and I got involved in the ministry there, and uh, the pastor was going to be gone one Sunday, and he asked me if I could come and preach on the Sunday he was gone, and uh, so I did. I went and preached. It was my first time uh, taking a Sunday morning service. And I was so nervous, I spoke so quickly, that in like 10 minutes, I did my whole sermon. And I was looking at the clock, and I'm like, what am I going to do for the next 20 minutes, 25 minutes, or what? I forget how much time it was. It was a long time. And uh, so I was really thankful for Bible school. They made us memorize a lot of Bible verses when I was there. So I went back through my entire sermon point by point, and I was adding extra like verses and extra details <laughs> my second time through. And uh, people afterwards, they, they didn't apparently notice that, uh, that I did that. I knew I did it. So, uh, but anyways, I'm saying that partly to calm myself because I feel a bit nervous again this morning. But, uh, but uh, anyways, I would like to share with you from the book of Acts uh, this morning. And it's going to be Acts chapter 19 and verses 23 to 41. So uh, let's begin by reading that uh, this morning. So in this uh, passage, uh, we're going to read about uh, a disturbance that takes place. So the message this morning is about a great disturbance that took place about the way. So it begins in verse uh, chapter or verse uh, 23. I'm nervous. Okay, verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that this business we have, from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, But in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were, with, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some in the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. 
But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are not sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you communicate to us using your word. I thank you that your Holy Spirit leads us into truth and enlightens our minds. And I thank you that you apply the truth as well to our hearts. I thank you that you can communicate with us so clearly, Father. I thank you that your word is powerful. I thank you that you show us so many interesting things from your word. And we show, you show us so many examples of lives lived for you and so many examples of difficult situations. And I thank you that you're faithful in all of those situations. I thank you that you are faithful in the lives of these believers who lived 2,000 years ago. And I thank you that you're faithful in our lives today. So I just pray now during this time that we would be mutually encouraged. I pray help us to rightly understand your word. Help me to speak clearly and accurately from your word. And I thank you that uh, you will produce fruit as your word goes out because you're faithful to do that. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So a great disturbance. It's almost, almost an understatement uh, to call it a great disturbance. So it was, it was probably today what we would call a riot was taking place. So they, they were all in confusion, and they, they grabbed uh, people and took them. Uh, and it was all about this way, right? It was a disturbance concerning the way. So the way was what they used to call Christianity, Christians. So it's interesting if we look over in Acts chapter 9 and verse 2. Uh, this character is also in this passage, but we see another, another guy doing something. Uh, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of, at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So this way... It was, it was the way of Jesus. It was the Christians. So they were being persecuted heavily in Jerusalem. And uh, if you remember from this passage, uh, this persecution scattered them all, all over Judea, Samaria. They were, they were scattering everywhere to escape the persecution. And here we, we see Saul, who was uh, one of the leaders of this persecution, and he gets a letter to go and pursue him pursue the, the men and women. And uh, he was after these people who belong to the way. And as I thought about that, we know that Jesus, 
He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So he's the way. And uh, now we see in this passage uh, a disturbance breaking out again about the way because the way uh, causes problems for some, right? There's the way, which is the narrow way, which is, which is Jesus, and then there's this broad way. And so there's, there's always conflict between the two ways, uh, and we're seeing that take place again here. So what's going on here? In verse 24, there was a man named Demetrius, and he was a silversmith. And it says that he made shrines of Artemis, and he brought in no little business uh, for the craftsmen from that. So this Artemis, she's also known as Diana among the Romans. So she was the goddess of the hunt. Yes, here's a picture of her. In, in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesus, there, Artemis, she was the, the goddess of fertility. Okay, so they, they viewed her as their local deity. So she was very important to them. And this Demetrius, he was an artisan. He wasn't just a smith, just, just out there making stuff. Um, he was an artisan. He was making things like this out of silver. And he wasn't alone. There were many people that were in that business in Ephesus because they were the keeper of Artemis. It was the city that was known uh, as the city that followed Artemis, the city where she was their deity. So Demetrius is doing that. And if you think today, it's not uncommon that when we travel to places, uh, like if I travel to Paris, I could go there and I could buy a little statue of the uh, Eiffel Tower. You know, maybe if I go to Rome, I could get the Colosseum. If I go to, to London, maybe I could get Big Ben or something like that. Like it's a very common thing when people are traveling. And many people traveled to Ephesus. It was a major city. It was actually a top four city of the Roman Empire, a population of about 250,000 people. It, it was a big, major city and really well known in that day. So these men are making a living off that. But it also, it wasn't just go get a souvenir. It had uh, religious significance for them. So what did he do? He's looking at this situation, and he gathered together the workmen from similar trades. So it wasn't just him uh, who was doing this. There were others in the trade who were all making a living off from, from Artemis. And he gathered them together. He kind of was their leader and he said, you know, from this business is where we have our wealth. This is where we're making a living. And when you start affecting people's wealth, whew, that's a problem. I mean, you look around the world today, when you start talking about taking away people's wealth, taking away their jobs, you're taking away their security, you're, you're stirring up a hornet's nest. And so that's what was taking place here. And if you look back uh, just a little bit before this in, in chapter 19, we see a similar situation taking place. Uh, Demetrius wasn't wrong that this was affecting him. He wasn't just, uh, you know, out to get uh, the Christians for no reason. But it says here in chapter 19, verse 19, and a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So this was when the magicians, right, they were practicing witchcraft, and then they came to know the Lord, and so they gathered their books together, and they burned them all, and it was worth a lot of money. 
So you could imagine if you were a, a bookmaker, someone who's making these books, supplying them to them, you're losing a lot of business. And so this was what was taking place. It was what was taking place in Ephesus because the ministry was effective. There were many people getting saved there. And so Demetrius looks at it and he says, oh, we better do something about this because if we don't do it, we're in trouble. We're going to lose our business. We're going to lose our wealth. Uh, so he brought them together. And I don't appreciate what, what he's doing in the sense of the, the, the anger and the persecution, but I can appreciate his love for artistry, his love for a craft. Um, I'm, I'm not anywhere at that level of an artisan, but I love to work with wood. And when you work with something like that, you're putting your heart into it. I'm sure he was very proud, and the other craftsmen as well, of their work. So I think it was also very personal for them. Um, he's not just looking at it that we're just going to lose money. It's also very personal. And then, so money, pers- personal, because he's doing something he probably loves doing. And then the third thing is, he's looking at it that, okay, this is my deity as well. Um, and I don't think we can discount that. So in verse 26, it says, And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Right? Which is true. (laughs) It's true both that Paul said that, because he did. He said that in many places. But it's also true that they're not gods. Right? So both of those things are true. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, uh, Paul was writing, and he said, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol is, has no real existence, and there is no God but one. Right? So Paul is teaching that. Again, in Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So... Paul was encouraging them, turn away from your idols, turn to the one true and living God. Um, again and again, we, we see this throughout the scripture. I could, I could give another passage in Acts chapter 17, more clo- in a, closer in the book to what's going on here. Uh, Paul is speaking in Athens, and he says, being then offspring of God, he was talking about their poets, had said that, that men are offsprings of the gods. And so he took that and he said, well, being then, that we're God's offspring, we ought not to consider, or we ought to think uh, that the divine being is like gold and silver, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So we shouldn't think that. Uh, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So this is what Paul was telling them, right? He was telling them that. So Demetrius, he knows that. People from Asia were traveling around and coming into the city. Paul was there for two years and uh, having this ministry. So, uh, yeah, so he's, he's stirred up and he's stirring up other people because of this. Verse 27, and there's danger that not only this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificent magnificence, she whom Asia and the world worship. All right. So Artemis, 
he's concerned about her as well. So in, uh, in Ephesus, they had a temple. They had a temple to the goddess Artemis, but it wasn't just any temple. Like uh, looking at this picture here, you can see it. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of information on it. So first of all, this temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was massive. Here, here was the size. It was uh, 128 meters long and 67 meters wide. So bigger than a football field, soccer field. Uh, it had 127 pillars that were 18 meters high. So it was taller than this, than this room here by, by a ways. Um, <laughs> yeah, people would travel from all over the world to come and see it. They would, they would travel there. There were writers of that time that spoke about it. Uh, there was one writer who talked about going to the hanging uh, gardens of Babylon and talked about going to the, uh, to the pyramids in Egypt. And then he said, but they were nothing to, to be compared with this temple of Artemis. Now, maybe he was just saying that, hyperbole, right? Maybe he was just saying that because he was trying to butter up the Ephesians. Or maybe he really believed it. But in any case... It was an amazing building. It, it awed people. And they would come there just to see it, like a tourist attraction for them. So he's looking at this and he's saying, wow, even this could be counted as nothing, you know. And, uh, you know, she's going to lose her magnificence, this Artemis. So, in verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged. They were furious. And they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. All right, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So, we, we see this situation taking place. The, the crowd is getting, getting heated up. Uh, they're becoming uh, enraged at this situation. And some of this, to understand it, we have to understand the, the mind of, of a pagan worshiper. Uh, the pagans were animists. The Christians were actually the ones who started using the term pagan but it was to refer to those who, who worshipped the gods of Rome and the gods of Greece. Um, but they were animists. So an animist is someone who sees religious significance in all the events and all of the things around them. So in this case, uh, we, we see that their, their deity was Artemis, and they're looking at it and they're saying, if this happens, not only are we losing our livelihood at this point, but we're going to lose her uh, her care, her providing for us, her making us prosperous. Uh, so they're really concerned about this, what's going on there. All right, so in verse 29, so the whole city was then filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So they didn't get Paul, but they got his companions, and they rushed together. And there was a lot of confusion going on, and they went into this theater. And it was a massive theater, a 25,000-seat theater. It was huge. So just, just for perspective, if you've been to the, to the stadium here in Debritsen, the Loki, uh, Naj Erde Stadium, that seat's a little over 20,000. So it was bigger than that, So just to get a perspective. And so they, they dragged them in there. Um, so these men, it doesn't, it doesn't say anywhere in the passage that, that they were the, the cause of the problem, right? But they were with Paul. They were his companions. 
And so they were drug in there. And when Paul found out about it or saw it in verse 30, it says that he wished to go in among the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. All right. So Paul's heart. I love this passage. The more, the more I thought about Paul and the more I was looking at him as a leader, um, the more I loved what he was doing here. So he, he wanted to go in there into this crazy crowd, you know, that was furious with him. They were just furious with him. And, uh, but he wanted to go in there. I could think of two reasons why he might want to go in there. One, is he's got a captive audience, right? They're all in this, uh, they're all in this big, you know, stadium type thing. Um, so he wants to go in there, and he has an opportunity to speak. The acoustics were good there, as well. And uh, I say that because we see Paul in other situations when there's dangerous crowds, and he he tries to go up and speak. He's like, "Let me speak to these people. Let me let me talk to them." And he usually goes into the gospel, and he's explaining to them, you know, the gospel. And so I think that was part of his motivation. But I also think as a leader, he didn't want to see people that he was leading be taken into this dangerous situation. He probably felt a responsibility for them and maybe thought that should be me in there instead of them. So we see Paul uh, here trying to get in there, but the disciples wouldn't let him. So then we see another side. Not only do we see Paul and his desire to protect uh, his guys, you know, that were his traveling companions, but we see the disciples desiring to protect Paul. So they recognized the danger. This isn't a, a place to just go in. And so they were trying to stop him. And then that's not all, though. In verse 31, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were his friends, they sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So they also were there. And these Asiarchs, uh, they were emperor worshipers, and they, they uh, were the ones who encouraged the worship of Rome. So they weren't Christians, um, unless they had been converted. Their position was to encourage emperor worship and the worship of Rome. And uh, Rome was very strict about trying to keep people in line, right? We, we saw that, uh, you know, when, the, when they were talking to Pilate about Jesus. They're like, he's telling, you know, saying there's another uh, king, right? It's another king. And uh, that would have been really bad for the Romans. They, they didn't allow that kind of stuff to take place. So there was an attempt, you know, to, to use that as a, as a way to influence Pilate. And it was effective as well. All right, so we see this, this going on. The Asiarchs are there, and they want to protect their friend. I, I also find it's interesting that Paul had become friends with these guys. Um, when we see Paul going places, and when we see him talking uh, in the Word, we see that he had, he had this way of connecting with people. Um, I don't think Paul was, was stirring up trouble from his personality. I think it was the message that was, that was causing the problems. But we see that Paul, here he has friends that are among the, these emperor worshipers. And so they're even sending word and saying, don't go into the theater. Don't go in there. Uh, so there, was, there were things going on behind the scenes of this, of this riot. Um, in verse 32, it says that some were crying out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't know why they had come together. 
So there were also people in there, they had no idea where they were there. So that's, a, that's another typical thing of a, a riot or a mob. Uh, people, people don't always know why they're there. They get caught up in the excitement. Um, yeah, we can see this, this sort of, uh, you know, thing taking place at other events. Um, in verse 33, we'll get to that in a second. In verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, for two hours. So this Alexander, we don't know uh, exactly, because the scripture doesn't say for sure, but in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, um, well, we know he's, he was a Jew, but in 2 Timothy Chapter 4, verse 14, when Paul is writing to Timothy from Ephesus, uh, he wrote to him about an Alexander, Alexander. And it says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, and the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. So I don't know if it was the same guy. Um, I lean in that direction just because of the intrigue of it. So this Alexander that's being talking about, talking about, or talked about here, he was a coppersmith. So he was also in a trade. So it would make sense to me if there's a bunch of tradesmen causing a riot, uh, that maybe if the, the Jews wanted to put some, someone forward, they would send forward uh, somebody who's also in the trades. And uh, so they put him forward, but they didn't want to listen to him because the Jews, they also taught against paganism, right? I mean, it's everywhere in, in, in Judaism. They, they learned a lesson, um, you know, in the Old Testament, not to worship uh, idols. And so they're, uh, they're putting him forward, but nobody wants to listen to him. And this, and this sort of thing happened two other times, once in Poseidon uh, and once in Iconium, where uh, the Jews we're actually trying to stir up the Gentiles against the message. So it's possible that the Jews, and maybe this man himself, were actually behind the scenes in this whole thing. And maybe they even stirred up uh, you know, um, Demetrius at the beginning. I don't know. But anyways, they're here, and the crowd doesn't want to hear anything for them, so they, they turn that down, or they, they put it down. Okay, we're not going to talk to them. And they start shouting uh, and shouted him down. For two hours, I can't imagine. After uh, after just a few minutes, I get thirsty. Excuse me. I get so thirsty when I'm when I'm teaching at the school. I have a bottle of water. I'm constantly drinking. I can't imagine yelling for two hours. They must must have lost their voices after that, and they keep yelling the same thing for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, right? Over and over again, uh, they keep saying it. All right, but then we see somebody else enter into the, to the situation. And this was a town clerk. It says, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd. So the town clerk, the clerk was, was kind of the leader of the town, right? They come forward and they quiet them down. And they say, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? All right. So back to, back to the animism again. 
uh, to talk about that. So animism, they're again seeing the spiritual in everything. Um, the animus, they don't they don't really explain things from the material. So at some point in time, a meteor had fallen from the sky. Maybe it landed in Ephesus, and when it did, they had they had an explanation for it. It was Artemis, right? The goddess Artemis had fallen from the sky, and so it made it made sense to them. Uh, one of the things about the animist animistic life. They don't explain uh, things spiritually because they can't be explained logically, right? Because they don't have some kind of logical answer or scientific answer, then they spiritualize it. That's not how their mind works. They connect to the physical and the spiritual. Everything that happens is spiritual. There's a spiritual cause, a spiritual reason for it. So in this case, you know, there's a spiritual reason. The gods came down to live in us, so let's build her a, a massive temple and worship her, right? She, she's our deity. She came to us. Uh, so that's what's going on. I saw, I saw animism uh, once I was traveling with some missionaries, and uh, we were traveling along, and they told me a story. As we were, we were driving down the road, we went past uh, these three hills, right? And it was near, it was near a, a small town. And so they were telling me, you see that bulldozer there uh, parked next to the hill? And I looked, and there was an old bulldozer there. It was starting to get kind of rusty. And they said, yeah, this bulldozer, uh, the town, years before, like 10 years before that, they were planning to move the town. They had outgrown their space. And so they were going to build by these three hills. It was a better location for them. And so they, the town gathered some funds together, and they, they bought this bulldozer. And so they brought it out there, and they were going to clear the land. So that this bulldozer got there, and uh, the guy got in at the controls, and he started driving it up the hill. And he would get partway up the hill, and the bulldozer would stop and roll back down. It would, like, stall out. So then they would get it started again, and he would do it, and it would do the same thing. And it kept happening over and over again. And so finally they stopped, and they said, the spirits, they don't want us to build here. So they just gave up and stopped doing it uh, because obviously, you know, there was something spiritual going on there. And they uh, had three spirits. There was one spirit for each of the hills. And then they set up little, uh, little places where they could go and make offerings there if they wanted to. So that wasn't good enough for the missionaries. <laughs> so they, they went and were, were looking at the, the bulldozer, looking at its mechanics, and it, ha- it had a hole in the gas line. And they said, uh, the, the way it was situated, if you're on a flat, it would run. But when it started go, going uphill, the gas would drain out and it would stall out and come back down. And so they said it was a really easy fix. You just needed to put a new hose on there to fix it. But that's not how the animists think. And uh, there's people all over the world who, who are still under this animism. So, uh, so that's what's happening here. They're, they're thinking, they're, their whole worldview is, is wrapped up in Artemis. They're, they're viewing her as everything for them. You know, she's the one who, who takes care of them and supplies for them. And uh, so all these events that are taking place, you know, they're looking at it as directly affecting her, and it's offensive to them. Um, so <laughs> let's go on and see what happens. All right, so he says, you know, this stone fell from the sky, and seeing that no one, uh, none of these things can be denied... You ought to quiet down and not be rash. Okay, so this man, 
he comes out there and he looks at the situation, the riot, and he said, look, everybody knows this is true. We know, they know that Artemis is our deity, you know, that Ephesus is the place where we have her temple, you know, that her sacred stone fell here from the sky. So we should just calm down and not do anything rash because they were putting themselves in danger, right? Again, this is the Roman Empire. They liked everything to be in order. They didn't like chaos. They didn't like rioting. They didn't, they didn't like these kinds of things at all. They, they had a really structured system of a judicial system. Um, a short time later, Paul uses that judicial system. Uh, so that was in place for a reason. So, he says in verse 37, For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. So he's saying, look, they're not blaspheming our goddess. Why did, why did you even bring them here? Like, they're, they're not sacrilegious, they're not blasphemous. Um, if it's Demetrius in verse 38, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with them have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. All right. So this, this man comes in and, and the town clerk, and he looks at the situation and he says, look, we need to calm down uh, because we're, we're putting ourselves in real danger here. I like uh, when, it, when it says here, you know, they're not being sacrilegious or blasphemous. I do like how Paul was thoughtful in his presentation of the gospel because uh, I, I look at this, you know, from a Judeo-Christian standpoint, and I look at it and say, look, these aren't gods, you know. It's, it's nothing. You're, you're worshiping stones, right? And plenty of times, the Old Testament, that, that's how the approach of, of the Jewish people with it within their community, but also outside of it. And in Psalms uh, chapter 15, I'd like to look, look at that, just a couple verses. So in Psalm, Psalm chapter 115, sorry, verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory, for your sake, for the sake of your steadfast love and faith, your faithfulness. So they're attributing God uh, to be, uh, they're attributing glory to God because he's steadfast in his love and his faithfulness. And they say, why should the nations say, where is their God? So one of, one of the things that the nations would sometimes say to the Jews is, where, where is your God at? Like, where is it? You know, is it in your pocket? You know, do you have it at home? You know, where are you keeping it? Because they had the idols, right? Like, like Artemis. Um, so the nations are saying these things to them. Uh, but in verse 3, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak, and eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. Feet, but they don't walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all those who trust in them. All right. So the idols, I mean, Paul, we already read earlier, Paul said Idol, idols are nothing. I mean, it's a piece of metal, right? It's what it is. I mean, people worship it. Um, they'll worship these idols at times, but they can't hear them. They can't answer their prayers. They, can, they can't know their hearts. They can't, they can't respond to them. Um, so it's a, it's a worship of futility. 
But earlier when we were talking about the broad way and the narrow way, um, you know, this, this narrow way that we're on as believers, the broad way out there, it's, it's a way of futility. People live their whole lives under this kind of futility, uh, worshiping false gods, worshiping uh, nothing at all, sometimes saying there is no God, show me your God, you know, that, that, that would be something even an atheist might say. Where is your God? Yeah. All right. Now in verse uh, 40. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. All right. So the conclusion of this situation, all this turmoil and uproar, is that they just disassembled at the end, right? They, they just went away. So calm was, re, was restored. You know, it's amazing how the Lord sometimes will use uh, circumstances like this in, pe- in people's lives. I wonder to what extent after this the believers had some sort of protection from these kind of riotous mobs as a result of this. The fact that all of these these people came together and they had this huge riot and all this, this stuff going on. And then it all came to nothing. I wonder if uh, the Lord used that. Because if we look at history, Ephesus continued on. Uh, it continued on as a, as a church that was growing. Um, all the way up until in the, in the fourth century, we see the church. We can see it all throughout history. It was still there. Um, you know, so we see that the church there uh, was continuing. And uh, I, I like to think that the Lord sometimes uses circumstances like this. Somebody had ill intentions, right? But the Lord turns it for good to save life. As he, as he talked about, Joseph talked about that. You know, his brothers meant something for ill, but God meant it to save life, to preserve life. Um, all right. There's a, pa- a passage I would like to... Uh, to read for you now. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And uh, it's related to this whole economics of, um, you know, the religion of that day, you know, because there was economics that was taking place there. But for, for the believers, there's economics as well. And uh, in chapter 2, starting in uh, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, uh, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, I think, to be grasped. All right, I want to pause there for a minute. So look out, not for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. I think we can see that in Paul in this passage. But I think we can also see it in the others, the disciples. No, they weren't looking out just for their own interests. They were looking out for Paul's interests. Um, But the real example of this is Christ. There's a a mindset that Christ had. In verse 6, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he was in the very form of God, by nature God, part of the triune God, 
He was the eternal son. But he didn't consider it a thing to be grasped. Uh, some translations, like the King James, an old translation uh, in English, says he didn't consider robbery to be equal with God. It means to, to hold on to something for your personal benefit, right? For, for Jesus, if we're just looking at a, a human perspective, for him it would have been better, right, to stay in heaven. I, I can't think of a lot of benefits apart from his love for hum, humanity, why he would come to earth. Um, we, we know what he experienced when he did come. But he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, he held on for his own personal gain. But instead, in verse 7, he emptied himself and taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men uh, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is, this is uh, Jesus. He came to earth. He didn't, he didn't hold on to his, his power, his authority, his riches, everything that he had in heaven, but he came here instead, emptied himself. And as a result of that, in verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Ephesus, there were those who were fighting that, right? They were fighting the way. They were fighting against the narrow way. Uh, both Jews and Gentiles, uh, they're unbelieving Jews, because there were Jews who were also believers. Um, but the unbelieving Jews and the Gentiles were fighting against that. But it's a, it's a futility. Every, everything that the unbelieving world does is futile. They, they fight against the way. But in the end, it comes to nothing, right? Because in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But that's why God has given us this ministry, right, of, of reconciling the world, uh, a ministry of carrying the light to the world. Because many of them, they're just doing what they know, right? They're not, they're not thinking I'm rebelling against God. They are in rebellion against God, but they don't know it. Uh, many of us, before we got saved, would have probably been in that boat. Um, I didn't think I was rebelling against God. I just didn't know who he was. And uh, today we have, we have this privilege and this opportunity. When we see Paul talking about uh, you know, carrying the gospel to others, we see that he also had the, the same mind as well. Because he said, when, he, when I go to the Jews... I'm like a Jew. When I go to the Greeks, I'm like a Greek. When I go to the poor, I'm like I'm poor. You know, he, he, would, he would go there and he would minister to them uh, where they were at. And uh, one, of, one of the things about being a believer is uh, we, we know that the Lord will use us in the lives of others around us. We, just, we need to have a willingness to trust him in doing that uh, and a willingness to be that salt and light. And uh, I pray that all the time for, for myself at my work, you know, opportunities to, to share with them because they're just in a, in a darkness, right? They're, they're deceived. So we as believers have such a, a wonderful opportunity to, to carry the light in this world. And we can see the fruitfulness of it um, as evidenced by Paul. So that's an encouragement for me as well.
I would just like to to close uh, by encouraging you in that. We're all all given gifts for the ministry. We're all given uh, a sphere of influence. And uh, look look for those opportunities. Uh, Look for those opportunities to encourage others and to pray for them and to speak words of uh, life to them because they need that. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're a good God. I thank you that you didn't leave us alone in darkness, but that you gave us a witness. Uh, I thank you that you witnessed to us through your word. You witnessed to us through believers. You witnessed to us through creation. I thank you that you witnessed to us by your spirit to what the truth is. I pray for uh, this world, Father. It's, uh, It's on the broad road. It's not on the way that's narrow. It's on the Broadway, and uh, I pray for them. I pray that they would see the light. I pray that they would recognize uh, the hopelessness and the futility of, of being on that Broadway. I pray that in our own hearts that we would have a willingness, um, a willingness to be used by you in, in whatever that way that means, a willingness to, to sacrifice ourselves for others, a willingness to serve others. I thank you for Jesus and that he took on the form of a servant. I thank you that he told us that we should be servants of one another as well. I thank you for the servant leadership model in our churches. I thank you that uh, you told us that those who want to be first should be like the servant of all. I thank you that in seeing that, in seeing that contrast, Uh, People can see your love. I thank you that we can see how much you loved humanity, that you gave up so much to come here, and that you suffered so much and died on a cross because of your love for humanity and because of your love for us. I pray and press that on our hearts as believers, that we could see our value before you, that we were so valued that you made such an incredible, heavy sacrifice for us, I I pray for unbelievers that they would see that as well, that they would see how much you love them, that you became a man and came among them in order that they would know that, in order that they would have a way uh, to come back into a relationship with you and be saved from their lostness and their futility and their sin. I thank you that uh, you always love us and you always communicate to us. I thank you that you never leave us alone, Father, that whatever circumstance we're in, that you pursue us, either to bring us back to fellowship with you or to bring us into fellowship with you from uh, our lostness. I thank you that you're faithful to build your church, and I pray that you will continue doing that here in Debritson, Debritson, around the world. I thank you that uh, there are believers, even now, uh, who are meeting and who are ministering to one another in, in places all over the world. And I pray for them. I pray that they would have effective ministries in their countries and in their churches and in their communities. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.